welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, it's officially the 49ers' best season. That's right, it's the offseason. We're here to bounce off of all available uprights, double doinks indeed, and with me this week to extol the virtues of John Elway as a general manager, it's one Mr. David Newman. David! <laughs> oh, the offseason. Man, it's great to be back, guys. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, so talk to me about how uh, John Elway is the best GM. Oh, man, he's so good. Remember that one time that he talked Peyton Manning into playing for him? And then remember the other good things that he's done since then? Oh, wait, yeah. None no, of them. No, no, none of them. None of them. So this week we have David Newman back, of course, uh, former host of the Better Rivals podcast. But he's back this week to recap the 2018 season because I thought we would take a moment to look back at 2018 by looking at the key questions that we started out the season in 2018. Because uh, when we opened the year back in July, we had a few questions that we thought would define the season. And really what this show is going to be all about is to see how we did, because those questions were pretty good at predicting the outcome of the year. Uh, and overall, I think that they're a good way to recap what happened in 2018. So we had a couple of key questions. One, the we're actually going to combine two questions, but we'll start with the first one off the top, David, uh, which is, will the 49ers manage to avoid significant injury <laughs> oh man you can't answer that one with a straight face uh no i mean the resounding answer was no no um which really tied in so i mean you mentioned that we're going to kind of combine that and and you know the the place that we started which is the place that again this season really started and ended with was uh jimmy garoppolo and and right of course everybody was concerned before the year about whether or not he would be able to kind of sustain the high level of play uh, was a cluster one quarterback for us uh, at PFF last year uh, in his his time there, which basically means he was among the best of the best, right? That's where uh, your Brady's of the world are, are at. You know, those top tier guys are in that cluster one area. That was what we saw from him in the brief stretch. And so everybody was concerned about whether or not he was going to be able to do that over a full season and beyond. And we never really got an opportunity. And it turns out like that was just one of, many 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 players uh to deal with significant injury over the course of the season now in the meantime though i think we did find a serviceable backup in quarterback nick mullins and i think that he had a fine season for a backup quarterback which is exactly what he is which you didn't think that that's what you would get out of a quarterback like nick mullins being that he was an undrafted free agent now i think the question that you leave the season with is what the hell do you do with cj beathard because C.J. Beathard was, of course, the hand-picked backup quarterback. C.J. Beathard, well, beat real hard, and he's real tough. And and when, you know, I've said it several times on the podcast, but when your quarterback's best ability is his toughness, that's usually not a good thing. Uh, and I've said several times as well that I think Nick Mullins is just as tough as C.J. Beathard, but he's actually a better quarterback, so you don't focus on his <laughs> toughness. So if you're the general manager for the 49ers, what do you do with Beathard and Mullins going into 2019? You know, I, I don't know that it's been resounding enough. I, I mean, I think you go into the offseason with them, right? No, yeah. there, there's you don't not need a, to cut them now. Yeah, there's not a market for for either one of these guys. I mean, they didn't play well enough. You sure John Elway's not going gonna to trade some picks I mean, for him? yeah, okay. Maybe, maybe John Elway might uh, decide <laughs> Vic Fangio wants to get on this action. But uh, I, I think, yeah, realistically, you're not expecting to be able to get any sort of return like in a trade for, for those guys. Uh, and so I think you roll into the offseason, right? You let it be a competition. I think uh, the fact that it's a competition is a surprise, right? I think nobody would have expected Nick Mullins to really uh, go out there and play even as well as he did. But it's not like uh, you, you suddenly have, you know, two 
starting two of the 32 starting quarterbacks, you know, sitting behind Jimmy Garoppolo there uh, or waiting to be flipped for all of these resources, right? They're still very much backups. Um, you know, I think you can feel pretty good. I mean, I think we, we, we know how important it is to have a backup. Philadelphia knows how important it is to have, you know, a decent backup that you can, you can be able to at least plug in. And if you have the parts around them, right, which is kind of, I think the part that needs to be worked on, but, uh, you know, they can still kind of like keep the, 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 the engine going there a little bit, but yeah, I don't know that you really are too concerned about it. You go into the off season with both those guys and, uh, just kind of see how it plays out from there. Now the 49ers did fire their strength and conditioning coach Ray Wright. And I really hope, I think my one takeaway for the new coach, whomever that may be, uh, is to add masturbation to <laughs> the, the training regimen to really improve the forearm strength. Because clearly, strength and conditioning coach Ray Wright had lots to do with those broken forearms in the secondary. And so, you know, he got canned. Broken be- forearms, broken tackles. A lot, yeah. of, uh, <laughs> a lot of those on the 49ers defense this year. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're of the same ilk, I guess. But, you know, I do think that Ray Wright got a little bit of a raw deal in that he got fired. I think there had to be some kind of action taken. But I think the Niners will regress to the mean when it comes to offense. And and I think that the new strength coach is going to benefit. And that's that. I don't know that it's going to really matter one way or the other. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, one of these years it's going to happen, right? Every once in a while you see teams that go on these strange runs of either uh, very fortunate health or very unfortunate health, right? Who was it? It was the the Giants, I think, that was had like three years or more in a row where they basically were like by far the most injured team in football. And uh, you just don't expect those things to happen. Right. And I think the 49ers now, uh, just since we've been doing this podcast, have seen kind of both ends of those spectrums. Right. I think you saw uh, in the Harbaugh years, they were, you know, had a run there where they were one of the healthiest teams in football. And now over the past few seasons, uh, they've been really unfortunate with injuries and have been one of the most injured. So uh, I, I think, yeah, at some point, while yes, uh, by all means, look into every possible advantage you can get from like a strength and conditioning standpoint and your off season program, all that stuff. Look, look for it. But eventually it's just going to uh, be a matter of you not being so unlucky and you're going to have some players yeah. stay on the field. I'm looking at tiny dumbbells uh, for ACLs. Just little baby ACL dumbbells is what I'm looking for. But uh, the next question we had in the offseason review was about the offensive line. And it was about how good the revamped offensive line could be. Because that was a problem for the 49ers going in to 2018. And they definitely made some changes. They added Mike Person. They extended Lake and Tomlinson. And, of course, they signed Weston Richburg. And this is one area where things are definitely looking up. The team, and, and maybe Kyle Shanahan, seems really able to evaluate this position specifically. The 49ers finished with the second highest graded run blocking offensive line per pro football focus. They finished higher than a couple of the vaunted run games like the Colts, the Cowboys, and the Seahawks. Mike McGlinchey, first overall pick, uh, well, first round draft pick, not first overall pick, first round draft pick for the, for, for the 49ers, finished with the second highest PFF run block, grade, run block grade. That's a tough one. It is. It's tough. In the NFL, behind the Rams, Rod Havenstein, uh, Joe Staley finished in the top 10. He finished eighth. And the run block was the run blocking over the course of the year was something the Niners could really hang their hat on. They just weren't in the lead in a lot of games to be able to really flex their muscle at the end of games. But this was an area where the 49ers showed a marked improvement, and it was in large part because of the pieces the team brought in and or extended. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I think there's obviously stuff to be said about the value of the run game in general, but uh, whatever production that you do get out of the run game is largely dependent on how well you can block up front, right? I, I think it's just a matter of 
you know, running backs get a lot of the credit, right? And a lot of the big name running backs um, get most of the the praise when running games are doing well. But the reality is they can't do anything if they're getting hit in the backfield or getting hit the line of scrimmage nearly every time. So I think, yeah, having an offensive line that can allow you to, again, like you mentioned, didn't get a chance this year to do it, but, you know, hopefully when things are uh, better and you have your quarterback on the field and you're looking to run out some wins, you know, that's a key part of it. So I think having that uh, is definitely a good thing to have on your belt. But I think in pass protection, they were certainly improved as well. And some of that, you know, has to do with some of the things that, that Shanahan does offensively to help those guys out. But I think really uh, this was a unit that was much improved pretty much across the board this year. Yeah, they gave up 31 sacks, which is seven off of their total for last year. Their pass protection grade ended up just a few points higher overall. They still ended up, I think, at 75 overall for the year in pro football focus grade for the unit. And Lakin Tomlinson was their highest rated guard in pass protection. And I think that's both a good and bad thing. I think it's good because Tomlinson is one of the better kind of sign extensions that they've had really for the franchise, really. They, they traded for him. They identified him as a talent in Detroit that was kind of miscast and misused. They brought him over. They, they played him. They developed him, and they signed him to an extension. And, and he is, you know, one of their better, if not their best, interior linemen. But when you look at how much money they've thrown at Weston Richburg, I think you've got to think to yourself, if he's our best interior lineman, then, then maybe things are still a little wonky because you really want Weston Richburg to be the best guy in the interior. He was by far the biggest disappointment with this group. Uh, I mean, I think they brought him over and in, in hoping that he would kind of be the, the piece that put force, it, yeah, yeah, everything together. And and really, he was probably the worst player on this offensive line all season. So uh, I think, yeah, that was a disappointing first season. Again, we know that he has that kind of high end play in him. It's just a matter of whether he can get back there. And and there was a lot of, uh, you know, he had to overcome injury and. And then, you know, he was also dealing with uh, probably a scheme in New York that wasn't the best fit for him. And so, you know, it's been a little bit since he was at that peak form. Um, But yeah, I think just even even kind of with maybe some lowered expectations and not expecting him to be the best center in football or something like that, like he was a few years back, uh, it was still a pretty disappointing season from him. I think he, he was just not good in really uh, either phase and, and, you know, ended up being one of our lowest graded centers in the league. And so hopefully that's the one area that you're pointing to for, again, why they can maybe even get a little bit better next season. Uh, I think you're looking at McGlinchey improving in pass protection a little bit. Uh, and then you're looking at Weston Richburg needing to take a step forward. Now, of course, context matters in, in all instances when evaluating players. And with Weston Richburg, one of the contextual items that may have contributed to his decline in play was a knee injury and he's been battling a knee injury supposedly all year i'm i'm not sure I'm, i do know that context matters and i do think that injuries in, impact a player's performance and can impact a player's performance quite a bit but i just i don't know if i don't know if a knee injury getting healthy is magically going to make him all of a sudden be a top 10 center yeah it's it's tough i mean it's one of those things that you you kind of can't really take into consider you can't put too much weight into that because it's such an unknown right so yeah there's so many players that are playing through injuries that are going through you know undisclosed stuff that it's tough to be able to apply that filter to everybody equally and and have the exact right context from an injury standpoint there and what they're actually playing through you kind of just are left you know, with what they're doing on the field. And, and I think, yeah, I, think I mean, you, kinda, you have to ignore it, I think, because when it, it's something that affects everyone equally and it applies to everyone equally. And so 
I think you can't apply it to one player and not apply it to another. Exactly. And so I think you just kind of have to call it a wash, say he didn't have a good year and hope that for whatever reason it gets better next year. Definitely. Uh, so the next question we had when we were looking at the 2018 season was whether or not the pass coverage unit would take a significant step forward. And this is the largest section of the agenda. <laughs> uh, man, no doesn't quite do it, does it? Uh, no. no, literally. I just I, I wrote in the agenda notes. Um, no. <laughs> uh, not only did they take uh, not take a step forward. I mean, they took a massive step back and, and they were, uh, you know, the worst coverage unit in the NFL by a pretty significant margin. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we added this year in, in premium sets was at the, the grades kind of at the team level, right? And be able to see how uh, teams are doing in each different facet. And, and so when you look at the team defense coverage grades, the 49ers were, again, dead last. Uh, their team coverage grade was 37.6. So the next... That's, is that out of 40? <laughs> uh, so this is the same 0 to 100, right? So uh, no, just for a little context. change it just for the Niners? Not just for the Niners. No, no. Uh, this isn't on a, a curve here or anything. So the next worst So one team, Asian kid getting a score of 40 doesn't just lower <laughs> the grade for everyone? Doesn't screw everybody over, no. Damn it. Um, the Raiders were 31st, right? So the second worst team. Their grade uh, as a team was 55. So that gap, which is about a little over 17 points, right, in, in grade there, that was roughly the same distance as it was between the Raiders in 31st and the Broncos in 22nd. So we're talking about the difference between another very bad coverage unit, one of the league's worst coverage units, and a roughly average, you know, average-ish coverage unit in, in where the Broncos were at that year. That's the difference. That's how much worse the 49ers were than everybody else from a coverage standpoint this year. Now, in our preview this preseason, we talked about how the Niners had devoted a good amount of resources to addressing the issue, but how basically every single player had significant question marks attached to them coming into the season. And we've said this over and over and over again, but it bears repeating. Not everything that you think needs to break right for your team to do well is going to break right. It's just you, you have to assume that some of the things that need to go right for the team are not going to. And this, which was probably one of the more important things, I mean, other than Jimmy Garoppolo being a cluster one quarterback, which got robbed from us in week three, this was the other thing that the Niners needed to do in order to take that step into the, you know, seven, eight, nine win territory that we thought they could get to. And and when you look at incumbent players like Akella Witherspoon and Adrian Colbert, they very much did not take a major step forward this season. Adrian Colbert may not even be the starting free safety next year. Yeah. I mean, that, that dude could just be a backup. Um, I don't know that Antoine Exum played appreciably worse than Adrian Colbert did, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and and on and I think the best there were eight different safety combinations this season. I think the best combination was the combination at the end of the year, and that may have been Marcel Harris and Antoine Exum. And and that's that's I mean, not good. That says that's, a lot of things. Where you want to be? That says a lot of things. <laughs> and and I don't know that they're all very good. Uh, but Akella Witherspoon, man, that guy needs he needs more seasoning. He needs more. He needs a lot of things. Uh, and yeah, he just, he did not develop into the player that we thought he would. And that was a major, major disappointment on the other side of Richard Sherman. It's tough. It's tough to imagine, um, a season going worse for a player than things went for a Keller Witherspoon this year. I mean, uh, just it, it basically any way you want to slice it up. Like it was just a really rough year for him and, and coming off the rookie season that he had and, and was looking very promising and, uh, you know, had a lot of talent that I think us and a lot of other people really liked. And just to see that just do a complete 180, I think was, was tough, but 
you looked at even beyond the incumbent players, right? So those guys, yes, they were a disappointment. But one of the things we mentioned in this section in the preview as well was that they devoted a lot of resources to trying to fix this problem. Because it was, it was, uh, you know, once you eliminated quarterback from the equation, this was the next biggest problem that they needed to address from a team building standpoint. And you went out there and you drafted a bunch of players and you signed Richard Sherman. And well, not all of those things went well either, right? So you, lo- you look at some of the draft picks and Tavarius Moore, third round pick you spent on him. Uh, you know, a player is a third round pick that you're expecting to come in and be somebody who's a, a significant contributor to your team. Um, didn't get on the field until late in the season, of course, was switching positions from safety to outside cornerback. Uh, once he finally did get on the field, he didn't play very well at the end of the year. You look at guys like DJ Reed, Fred Warner, who, again, were also changing positions from the position they played primarily in college. Um, those two, I think, were a little bit more promising. They certainly had flashes of success and, and kind of these small stretches of good play. Um, but it was a lot of struggles in there as well. And, and you look at the consistency uh, from them over the course of the season, and it just wasn't there. And, and Richard Sherman is really the big one. And, and I think he didn't play as well as a lot of people think that he played this year. Now, before, before we get to Sherman, because I know we've got uh, we've got a bit scheduled for him. Uh, I do think it's important to note some uh, one of the tactics that 49ers have used and have been using in the kind of initial stages of the rebuild, which is to try to find athletic value at a position and then develop that position over the course of a couple of years. It's a luxury that they felt that they had because they didn't feel they had to win right now. And, and so they felt like they could take a player like Akella Witherspoon in the third round or Tarveris Moore in the third round, spend a couple years seasoning them, developing them. And then by the time the Niners were really ready to compete in year three and year four, you have valuable assets, athletic assets that have been able to develop at the NFL level. And that's not proving to be as successful as a strategy as one would hope. And I think the Niners are now in a position where they can no longer take those developmental gambles. They now have to take players that play the position that they want to play in the NFL. And it seems, you know, that that's not a crazy idea, but it seems to be a little bit crazy, especially a defensive back for the 49ers, especially when it comes to the draft and free agency. They can't draft and select any more developmental players. They've got to pick players who perform well at outside corner if they want them to play outside corner in the NFL. If they want them to play slot, draft the damn slot guy. Don't draft a freaking defensive tackle who's athletic that you want to play slot corner, right? Like <laughs> these position switches, they take a lot to work successfully. And, and the Niners are now in a year, they're three years into this rebuild, they're not going to have a lot of wiggle room anymore in order to, to get these kinds of evaluations wrong. Definitely. And, you know, we've got a lot of time to get to over the course of this offseason, um, you, you know, what they need to be doing this offseason to, to kind of get things ready for next year. But this was supposed to be the offseason where you kind of are ready to go all in and, and start kind of making your push, right? We thought Garoppolo accelerated that a little bit, and, and this was going to be a year where they could kind of compete for for maybe a fringe playoff spot, something like that. But um, this going into year three here, you know, two draft classes under your belt, this was really the time we were talking about, like, using a larger chunk of that cap space. Like, this is supposed to be the year you're making your push, right, and, and, and actually getting up there among the contenders. And and now it just kind of feels like with the way things have gone developmental developmentally for a lot of these players, especially on defense, uh, it's it's it makes that tougher. It makes it tougher to accomplish. How long do you give a player like Akella Witherspoon? Because I look, I, I always think about Kyle Fuller, and, and I think about how he's played such a good. He, he's played so well for the Bears this year, 
and he was he was complete dog shit. Like we'll just call it what it is. He was sure. awful his first few years in the NFL. But it wasn't until the last year of his rookie deal that he finally flashed. They didn't extend they didn't extend him for his fifth year options. Uh for his fifth year option, I should say. And, and now he is probably the best corner on that team. And and so I, how long do you give a player like that before you just, you know, kind of wash your hands of him and and don't give him any playing time because I think the other thing Kyle Fuller had was sustained playing time over the first couple of years of his career. Right. I think especially in a in a situation where uh, you, you aren't a very good football team, right, which is where they were at this season, um, especially once Garoppolo went out. I mean, it was basically any any realistic hopes for, you know, getting to the playoffs, competing this season were gone. Uh, in those moments, when you have a defense that's as young as the 49ers are, and they have so many young players on that side of the ball, especially you have to let them play through some lumps, right? And I think that was something that did, uh, that was worrisome with Witherspoon was how quickly they bailed on him when things went poorly. And, and that I think, was incredibly frustrating. Uh, yeah, and, and you know who knows what that does to a player mentally over the course of the year, and and how much you know he struggled to come back from that. And while that's, I don't think you know necessarily a, a complete excuse, and and you're looking to kind of wash this bad year away for him because of that. Uh, it is it is tough. You you want to see them have an opportunity to play through some of those struggles. I think with Witherspoon, it's a little bit different than a player like Moore, right? Or even a player like Solomon Thomas, who we'll talk about later, where Moore is, you know, being asked to do something completely different. And so you're you're taking something, you know, again, that you're already looking for development when a player is plays one thing in college and then you come in and you have him do the same thing. There's still development there, right? They're still growing as a player and, and, and having to kind of take on the learning curve that is the more complex game in the NFL. And all those things are already there. Switching positions just complicates that you're setting them back because they're, you're, you're sending them to a position they don't know. And so it's just more for them to battle. And then if you wait too long and re- before you realize that you've made a mistake and try to get them to go back to the thing that they were good at to begin with, well, then who knows like where they're at with those still, right? It's different you techniques. Up, you end up with Jimmy Ward at that point. Right. Yeah, exactly. Jimmy Ward is a, is a perfect example of you know being moved around too much. A talented player who probably could have been a, a really good contributor for the team but was bounced around too much and, and just never could find a role. And so I think you worry about that for a player like Moore. With Witherspoon, I think there's other things that you're worried about. Um, less so him. You know, I, I think you give him time still, right? He was an outside guy in college. He's been an outside guy here. Um, you know, those same concerns aren't really there for him. I think he just needs to work through some struggles. So let's talk about Richard Sherman because he he's going to be the guy that we kind of uh, myth bust a little bit this episode. He has now come back into the he's a shutdown corner conversation. And while Richard Sherman has been fine for the 49ers, that he has been their best corner by a long shot, I don't know that he is the lockdown corner that he was in Seattle. I think he may just be getting back to like pre-Achilles Richard Sherman uh, and, and in his last year, right? Where he was kind of like above average, but not spectacular. Good enough that the Seahawks felt like they could cut him and, and not be appreciably worse. And, and I don't know that they necessarily made the wrong move. I think he probably still could have helped the Seahawks. But the, the, I think the narrative that Richard Sherman is back to being elite Richard Sherman is incredibly flawed. Absolutely. I, I think um, there's no question that this was his worst season as a professional football player. Um, I, I think there is one specific stat that seems to get tossed around with him as like kind of this evidence that 
he's back. And and that's the fact that he's allowed a reception just once every 20.2 snaps in coverage was what he ended the season at. That was the third best figure in the NFL. And so uh, you see that and you say he's not allowing catches. That's the cornerback's job, basically, right? Don't allow catches. He's amazing. And and that's kind of where things have have left it. And, and just because he's Richard Sherman, nobody really questions it, right? Like, of course, okay, he's back. Awesome. And And I think there hasn't really been uh, a look much deeper than that. And, and I think once you do start looking at it, uh, you know, a little bit more detailed, let's, let's look deeper. This, is, this is what we do, David. Let's look deeper. Let's do it. Uh, so I think you can start with his coverage grade, right? Which I think for us is, is more, um, that's the measure of performance and how well that they played. That's the, the number. If you're going to point to one number, that's the one that has the most context built in. Well, it's it's not an outcome-driven stat. It's a process-driven stat. Right. And by outcome-driven stat, I mean specifically what happened at the outcome of a play. And especially with coverage stats, I don't think that you should completely wash away outcome-driven stats, but I do think that you need to attach a grain of salt to them because there are lots of things that go into the outcome of a play that in some cases are not in the control of the defender. And and Richard Sherman benefited by uh, from a ton of those not Richard Sherman's fault for that ball being complete. Definitely. And so I think you look at his coverage grade, right? His coverage grade was just under 70. So 68.1. That was 49th among cornerbacks, right? So obviously there's a big discrepancy there. 49th coverage grade, third best receptions allowed per snap. So what right? explains the difference? So the big thing is going to be one. He was the least targeted corner, like regular corner in the league. Um, this was less. Richard Sherman is amazing and locking down the, the one side of the field and has there's nowhere to throw to over there. And a lot more, every other option on the 49ers defense is a better place to throw the ball. If you're going to go up against the wall, why are you going to go to the most fortified part of the wall? Even if it's a really weak wall, you're still going to go to the other part of the wall and be like, nah, but this is paper thin. I'm going to go right over here. I'm going to punch a little hole through this guy and yeah. we're, we're off. Um, so yeah, I think it, it was, and that showed up again in some of his targets because when he was targeted, um, he just simply wasn't in position to make plays on the ball or, or prevent incompletions um, when he was thrown at, right? And so I think you saw, one, a number of throws where he was beaten and it was just an off-target throw, and so it was like an overthrow or the receiver dropped it or something like that out of his control that ultimately led to the incompletion, not him making a good play. And then when you look at things that he does control, right? So on those targets ways that he can force an incompletion. And that's, you know, for us, there's a lot of different ways that you can go about doing that. It's not just simply getting your hands on the ball for an interception or, or uh, you know, a pass defense. There are other ways that you can prevent an incompletion or a, a completion, excuse me. Among 57 cornerbacks who played at least 300 snaps on the outside. So taking away the slot guys who don't have as many opportunities to really force these incompletions, looking purely at the guys on the outside, Sherman was 51st in forced incompletion rates. So that means when they were throwing his way, he wasn't doing a whole lot to prevent the ball from being caught, right? So when you look at those two things in combination, right, wasn't targeted a whole lot. And then when he was tar- targeted, he really didn't do anything with those opportunities. And I think that's where you see the the difference there made up then between what his coverage grade was and what the, you know that one stat says. And to, th- to throw another log on that fire, he had a, a really high number of passes that were incomplete due to a quarterback overthrow or poor throw um, or a wide receiver drop. So basically, the quarterback does everything right, throws it to Sherman's coverage, wide receiver should catch it, but that gets dropped. That goes as an incompletion, and Sherman gets to do his whole hands, uh, hey, I, I defeated a pass or whatever, when in reality he had oh, nothing yeah, to do yeah. with that. 
right? Or the Josh Rosen effect where, and this, I mean, I I think that the first Arizona game was exactly that where he, Rosen was just airmailing passes to Sherman's side and one where Sherman was beat on a deep route and he was three yards behind the wide receiver, but Rosen just airmailed the, airmailed the ball. And that goes again as a, 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 it's really beginning to annoy me, actually. I think Monson talks about this on Twitter all the time where like the defensive back gets up, does nothing to stop it's the, the pass, worst oh. and gets up and does the whole like, you know, like incomplete. You know. Yeah. Anytime it's incomplete, the defender has to let you know that it was incomplete, even though they were completely torched on the play. It's just like, <laughs> dude, get the hell out of here. Go sit down. Uh, and I think, you know, look, it's important to say that we're not trying to go uh, overboard with this thing. Nobody's trying to say that Richard Sherman sucks. Nobody's trying to say he's one of the worst corners in the league or, or any of this stuff like that. That's, that's drastic. Uh, it's simply, he has been a, an okay, not great corner this year. He, he was the yeah. best cornerback on the team. Um, there definitely is some, you know, value to him being there. Nobody's trying to say, you know, cut him tomorrow based on what he did, but he is very far removed from the elite cornerback um, that we kind of you know saw on the other side of things when he was in Seattle. And if you're looking for a narrative for next year, and and you're looking for like a you know a, a flag to plan, you're like, I think that Richard Sherman's not going to be very good next year. I think that's that's this is the narrative that you can point to to be like, well, he wasn't actually all that good in 2018. So let's not be surprised if for some reason the Niners upgrade their corner situation on the other side, and now Sherman gets a ton more targets. And guess what? It doesn't turn out in his favor. That shouldn't be a huge surprise if that happens in 2019. Yeah. And, you're, and you're hoping, you know, that the Achilles thing is just took some time to get back, right? And I, He's I don't got think... speed and explosion back, and, and then he continues to get back into more Richard Sherman shape. Yeah, he mentioned, you know, the whole there was the whole thing about his uh, vertical jump, I think it was, right? Uh, you know, from beginning of the season to end of the season and the difference there. And so I, I think, yeah, you're hoping that um, I, I, there's no reason again to think that all hope is lost with him by any stretch and, and to think that he can't be a productive player for you. I think it's just a matter of setting proper expectations about, you know, what he did and maybe it is a, just time where he's not going to be that player again. Right. I think that has to be considered a realistic possibility. And he can, he can still be one of the two top best corners on the, the Niners and still not be elite Richard Sherman and be like, you know, 80% of Richard Sherman. That's still, yeah. a, that's still a decent Richard Sherman. That's, there's still value in that, yeah, for sure. As long as we can upgrade the other side of the field, which, you know. <laughs> and the other, the safeties yeah. and the slot and then All maybe right. the simmer linebacker. Down, David. Simmer down, simmer down. <laughs> so let's get to the next question we had this preseason. And that was whether or not the Niners could sustain or improve their pressure rate. And this is another one, much like the offensive line, where the arrow is indeed trending up. The Niners finished with more sacks and almost an identical pressure rate as they did in 2018. Now, what the hell does that mean? That means that they converted, well, in 2018, 34.9% pressure rate, which was 15th in the NFL, 6.4% sack rate, which was 19th. 2017, they had 35.7% pressure rate, 13th in the league, 5.4% sack rate, 24th. So this year, they were just able to convert more of their pressures into sacks. And you remember us talking in the season recap last year where we're like, okay, the pressure rate is actually not bad. What the hell? What should we expect from the 49ers next year? And the resounding answer was, we'll probably just end up with more sacks. Uh, even, but if they were to improve their pressure rate in addition to that, then we could see a huge step forward. It's no surprise that they didn't add any pieces. They didn't add an edge rusher. Uh, it turns out Cassius Marsh, not the answer. Uh, and <laughs> And the pressure rate maintained, and they got more sacks, though, because they were able to, com- they were able to convert a, b- a bit more. 
but DeForest Buckner. Looking at you, DeForest Buckner. I mean, you can pretty much point to DeForest Buckner almost solely as the reason for the improvement in well, yeah, three to rate. Three to 12 is nine. And I think they ended up with like, what, seven more sacks, I think, this year than they did last year. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so yeah. So it, even though everyone else, I think, fell off, you still had an, the, more of enough of an increase in DeForest Buckner to, to help kind of lift everyone else. Definitely. And I, I think it's worth noting there, too, that they maintain that pressure rate, even though the league-wide pressure rate actually dropped a little bit, dropped two percentage points this year from 2017. So they were able to maintain that, again, still right middle of the pack there, not too far from league average, uh, which is where they're at overall pressure-wise, um, which is good, right? I mean, that's not that's not a terrible spot to be, like uh, getting pressure at that rate. The sacks, of course, you always want. You know, those are such a big help for your defense. They're going to convert those. But this is why we talk about, and you look at, at, at DeForest Buckner, you know, managing to get to that double-digit sack total. Um, we have him at 13 sacks because, you know, half sacks are stupid. Uh, the 13 sacks uh, was actually... S- third among interior defenders only behind Aaron Donald and Chris Jones. So uh, again, it it goes back to a point that we've hammered home like uh, for years now, it feels like, which is if you generate pressure consistently, the sacks are going to come right. Sacks as an outcome is largely random. Uh, You know, a lot of the, a lot of sacks are are cleanup sacks or um, things out of the player's control, right? Um, You can beat a defender immediately and if the ball gets out of the if the quarterback sees it and and lets go of the ball right you have no opportunity to make a sack uh so there's a lot of things that go into that play actually ending with the quarterback on the ground um that the player can't control but what he can control is beating the blocker in front of him and and you know getting to the quarterback to have to force him to make some sort of decision if you do that consistently the sacks come eventually now, one player I hadn't thought about in a long while, and as we were doing the recap, it, he kind of popped up, and I was like, oh, yeah, that guy, Jeremiah Atauchu. He was cut in training camp. He was supposed to be the stopgap answer at the edge position, kind of a, a veteran value that the 49ers could turn into some edge pressure. The, the Niners cut him, and, and he didn't do a whole hell of a lot in New York. Uh, he ended up with, I think, 12 total pressures, two sacks, but he ended up with a pass rush grade of 69.5 on the year, which puts him in the like just touching the above average kind of area, right? But this is, again, in, in spot play. This right. is not as a regular starter. This is a backup, which was his role in, uh, in San Diego. And, and it's a role that he played fairly well. But that pass rush grade would have been um, just about near tops on the team. <laughs> Other, right. I mean, obviously, non-DeForest, non-deforest Buckner, Buckner, right? Yeah. If you look at... Um, other players that played kind of in spot uh, in spot duty. You've got Mark Nazocha, who was at 69.5, Eric Armstead, who was at 68.2, uh, and then Sheldon Day, who was at 67.6. So that would have been tops on the team. Cassius Marsh was 62.3. So was I, I'm not trying to say that Atauchi was like a huge mistake and he would have turned anything around. I think he probably sure. would have ended up in near the same area. But I, I don't know that. I don't know that keep, cutting him for Cassius March was necessarily the right move. It probably would have been a little better to keep him, see what you had there, uh, and cut Cassius March because you knew what you had there. Um, I think the the point there, the takeaway with with that whole thing and the whole edge rusher thing this offseason is don't get overexcited about guys who haven't done anything. And there's, there's no reason to be, don't talk yourself into guys who have done nothing, doing something suddenly. Like if it happens, awesome. Be pumped about it when it happens. But like the, the fact that there were people hyping up, you know, guys like Marsh guys like a Tauchu as being potentially productive, like quality players is just like, 
you're you're pulling that from nowhere, right? There, there's nothing that you have to base that on, and so I'm sure you know. Hopefully, the the edge market in general will be better this off season. Uh, you know, some more guys will hit free agency. The the draft class looks significantly better this year, so I, I think there's going to be more opportunity. But like, don't look at random free agent signing for no money is like the savior. And when you're looking at free agents for this offseason, which we're going to do, and there will be lots of, trust me, we're going to look at pass rushers extensively over the offseason, but don't look at just gaudy sack numbers. You've got to look at pressure rate because pressure rate and people who can create consistent pressure are going to be better over the long term at generating sacks because those random events will come. But if you just go after the Ezekiel Ansas who end up with, you know, 12 sacks and a very, very low pressure rate, those are the dudes who fall back to the floor. Last question in the offseason preview that we had was how the schedule ultimately would shake out. And the Niners did have a tougher schedule this year. Uh, They ended up 10th in average DVOA DVOA faced. That's, of course, defensive adjusted value over average football outsiders metric for per play efficiency. Uh, And that was, I think, partly because the Rams were amazing. Uh, The Bears were amazing. Teams that you didn't really expect to be as good as they were uh, over DVOA. The Chiefs were amazing. Right. Um, Yeah, I think there were quite a few teams that, uh, you know, ended up being really better than we expected right so i think you look at chargers the chiefs yep chargers chiefs for sure yeah the Um, rams twice uh you have the seattle seahawks which are always dvoa darlings uh and and then the the bears Bears, yeah and i think yeah everybody i mean we kind of knew going into it you know what we expected was the second half of the season was going to be a bit easier once you got to that stretch where you're looking at the cardinals raiders giants bucks right that did in fact end up being uh, an easier stretch. And, you know, I think that was an area that if they had, uh, you know, any semblance of a roster that you would have expected to have at the beginning of the season there, then, uh, you know, that might've looked a little bit differently, but yeah, I think overall there's a few teams much better than expected. Uh, and, and that's, you know, enough to do it. That's why, you know, schedule, it has a big, big, uh, big impact on, yeah. you know, the outcomes there when your team, uh, is in contention, especially, I guess, but, uh, yeah, for, I don't know that it mattered a whole lot this year with the way things broke elsewhere. So here's the, and, and that kind of wraps up the, the kind of questions because that, that was, I think the key questions that we had going in, we had some answered positively, some answered negatively, some answered with treading water, right? When we looked at whether or not the Niners could avoid significant injury, well, no. And that kind of blew up the whole season before it started. Uh, the offensive line got better uh, and better, especially as a run blocking unit, even if they stayed roughly the same as a pass blocking unit. But I do think the development of Mike McGlinchey is one bright spot on the offensive line. Pass coverage did not take a significant step forward. I'd, I'm not even sure that it treaded water. I think it actually took a, sig- a significant step backwards uh, and, and not just, you know, kind of treading water. Uh, they they sustained their pressure rate. They kind of stayed flat there, even if they got more sack numbers. Um, and the schedule was, well, more difficult. And next year, maybe it'll be a little bit easier and that will help overall. I think big picture and big takeaway, David, uh, my my worry, I think, is that this year wasn't necessarily wasted, but it was more treading water than you would want in year two. Because what do we know now that we didn't know at the end of last year? Well, now I think we know that George Kittle is a superstar. We were yes. just kind of hyping him up to be a superstar last year. I mean, second team All-Pro is fucking awesome. Should have been first. Um, it should have been first. I, I agree. It should have been first. But you know we what? It, it is what it is. Um, and I think that having a, a team that is gelling as a run blocking unit and I think an offensive line that is now stabilized with Tomlinson and Person and McGlinchey, I think that's a fantastic development as well. But again, Matt Breida kind of 
quasi breaking out, battling injury the whole year. We knew that too. So I don't know that we're in any better place now than we were last year. And that, I think, kind of worries me. I think this highlights the fact that, again, the most important things relative to the, that lead to success in this league are your quarterback and your pass coverage. And we were terrible in those areas. You, you lose your, your franchise quarterback, the guy you're hoping to be the answer. Um, you know, nobody really is, is equipped to handle. I, I shouldn't say nobody, I guess, but few, very few teams are equipped to, to be able to handle that sort of loss. Uh, and then the second most important Doug aspect Peterson would like a word, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the second most important aspect to, to winning, um, was far and away the worst in the league. Right. And so I think it highlights, even though you may have other promising areas, right? I think again, the run game was good. The offensive line is good. Those things don't move the needle. And, and I think that needs to be kind of a lesson. The quarterback thing, there's no lesson to be learned there. Hopefully you're well, Jimmy Garoppolo, get the fuck out of bounds. Yeah. That's the lesson, <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, lesson. <laughs> that you take away there. No other big picture uh, lessons that need to be learned, but I think it, that that should inform what they do going forward, right? They should see that, okay, our run game was good and it didn't matter, right? Our run defense was better and it didn't matter. We're picking number two overall because we couldn't throw the ball and we couldn't stop the pass. And, and that needs to be And third, we couldn't, rush the, we couldn't rush the passer. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that's, I think that's your third place. It's there. Yeah. Edge, not trying to discount that, that need at all. Like that's something that they need to do. And this is, uh, should hopefully be a better off season to attack that. But again, that goes to stopping the pass, right? Stopping the pass, throwing the ball. Um, those, you need to be doing everything in your power to improve those areas this off season. So in, in that vein, I think there's one thing I'll, I'll add to this, and that's my biggest surprise of the offseason, and that's going to be the evolution of Robert Sala. Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because we've talked about it on previous weeks on the show, but I do think it's important to note that he, he has made changes to his scheme that I, I think are good changes and, and changes he doesn't get enough credit for. Robert Sala gets a ton of flack for being effectively schematically inept. And while he does do some things that are still frustrating, like a lot of kind of incessant spot dropping, it's tough to evaluate him when he's operating with incredibly deficient talent. And we've talked about that at length here on this show. But when you look at his split safety coverage before the buy and after the buy, it shows that he is really, really changing things up or at least trying to. Before the buy, he had 337 pass snaps. He had 60 open coverage looks, split safety looks. That's 18%. After the buy, he had 57 split safety looks out of 184 plate. That's 31%. He just about doubled his split safety looks when he came out of the buy. That kind of dramatic turnaround, I think, just shows that he's not just a single high guy who's going to do one thing over and over and over again, and oh my God, his scheme sucks. He is indeed trying to tinker with the defense. He is trying new things, and the defense played much better at the end of coming out of the bye at the end of the year, and I think maybe part of that was due to his personnel. Who the hell knows? I mean, you got Harrison Exum there at safeties. You've got to try some new things. So I think his player utilization also improved a bit. Solomon Thomas played more on the inside after the bye. Earl Mitchell stopped playing. Finally. Hooray. The Earl Mitchell experiment is over. Um, you know, and so I think that all of those things are good. And I think those speak to why he is getting another year in San Francisco. And I think, honestly, deservedly so. I don't think he's a bad defensive coordinator. Or at least I think there is enough there that I'd like to see him with a better set of talent, with more talent. Exactly. And I think there were, I remember, you know, on um, an earlier episode in the season, uh, I, you know, one of some, somewhere in the first half of the season, one of the things that when, when I came on that we talked about was 
you know, whether he would make adjustments or whether he wasn't doing certain things from a coverage standpoint because he didn't feel like he had the players who could execute them or because he simply wasn't making, he was doing a bad job making adjustments, right? And, and kind of which of those it was. I think over the, the second half of the season, especially after the bye, we did see more of those adjustments. You know, you mentioned some more uh, of the two high safety looks. I think they did some different things, showed some different things and adjustments to their base, like cover three uh, to kind of counteract some of the more common route concepts that they see, made some adjustments there. So those kind of things that we saw at the end of the season does give me a little bit of hope that that if they can get the personnel right on that side of the ball, that he's going to have answers, right? Because that's the thing that you worry about. Um, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before the show, and we won't get into it a ton now. But really what you want from a defensive coordinator is it doesn't really matter how you get there so much as do you have answers for what the offenses are going to throw at you, right? Um, there may be multiple ways that you can answer that question, but you need to have those answers available to you. It points before it looked like Robert Sala might not, right? But it was hard to evaluate that because you're like, well, their talent is awful. And, and so like, you know, is this really him or is it other factors? Toward the end of the season, as he started to try and make some of those changes, I think there was enough there that makes you optimistic that, again, personnel can get right that he can be a quality defensive coordinator. Now, player development is still a concern. The 49ers have not been getting production from a lot of their young players on defense, and I'm curious to see what the departure of Jeff Halfley actually does uh, and if all of a sudden players take huge steps because <laughs> that, that would be something. And Jeff Halfley, of course, took the co-defensive coordinator position at Ohio State. But you, you've got a promising 2017 class that was a major disappointment in year two. Solomon Thomas has been a combination of kind of misused and underwhelming. Ruben Foster, he gone. Akella Witherspoon, Adrian Colbert all thought that they were going to be key building blocks. They are now riding the pine and are coming off of injury. Um, and you've got not a single rookie or second year player that managed to earn a PFF grade over 70. And only one was over 65. And that's DJ Reed. Uh, and he may still be a player that is better at corner than at the position they're trying to shoehorn him into in that damn take a guy and play him at a different position that yeah. the Niners seem to be uh, you know, enamored with. So you, you still worry about players like Tarvarius Moore and whether they'll be in that, you know, kind of Jimmy Ward flip flop, um, which I think let's just call it getting warded, getting warded. Yeah. I mean, again, you worry uh, Solomon Thomas like that, too, because I think that was the thing you mentioned that that kind of his player utilization, Solomon, that is uh, later in the season, got a little bit better and playing Solomon Thomas more inside. But Solomon Thomas wasn't markedly better on the inside this year, you know, uh, and, and I think there's a, a decent argument there that that's because, you know, he's kind of been trying to learn this other skill set that he needs to be able to play outside. And it's just not like falling back. It's not like riding a bike again, going back on the inside, right? Or at least it wasn't for him this year. When you do it like split plays and there's only 13 in a game, it's like, well, it's now tough. It's like, yeah, it yeah. Is. it's tough for a player to kind of find any sort of rhythm there and, and be able to, to kind of, you know, perform to his best abilities there. So I think the worry, yeah, from a development standpoint is that you have players like Solomon Thomas, like Tavarius Moore, um, even like DJ Reed, I think a little bit lesser extent, but uh, players who were talented and showed in college that they could do certain things very well and have now been asked in this defense to do different things. And you worry about their development and whether those are going to become effectively wasted players, get warded, uh, and and you just kind of lose out on those picks because those are guys, again, especially with, I think, Solomon Thomas and, and more, those are day one, day two picks, right? Those are guys that you're expecting to be 
performers for this defense and, and to, to just kind of have them wasted uh, really sets things back for you defensively. And it's great when you can hit on those round three, round four, round five picks or undrafted free agents. But if you continually miss on your day one and your day two picks, it's usually not going to end well overall for your team. Uh, so let's get into the final segment, and that's going to be the superlatives for the 49ers because this is always the fun part. Uh, so let's get to the MVP for the entire team. David, I'll let you tackle this one. I mean, come on. Come on. It's George Kittle. It's not Nick Mullins? It's not Nick Mullins. <laughs> uh, get the hell out of here with your Nick Mullins. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this one uh, is incredibly obvious. Um, you know, he was really the lone player offensively um, that that consistently stood out throughout the course of the season. Uh, He had a better season at tight end than any player did uh, defensively at their position. Uh, And I think, you know, we we've talked about this before when I've been on, but he's had, he truly had like one of the best tight end seasons that we've seen. You know, when you look at what he did after the catch, forcing missed tackles, um, you know, of course, like had the most yards, but those yards, you know, if, if it's just yards, like that's not really enough, right? You know, the, the, a lot of a lot of empty yards could be in there, a lot of garbage time stuff, whatever. He was actually making the most of his opportunities um, consistently, and I think there's a really strong case that he was the best tight end in football this year. I think it's a it's a good argument between him and Travis Kelsey. I, I don't think you can really go wrong with either one of those guys this season. But the fact that he was in that conversation on a team that's about to pick second overall, I think really highlights how much better he was than everybody else this year. Yeah, so we get to the next one. That's going to be Offensive Player of the Year. And for me, that's going to be none other than Matt Breida. Choo-choo! <laughs> you have to do it, man. You have to do it. Uh, uh, so Matt Breida, he is, of course, a darling of the Better Rivals podcast. But he was very clearly the best running back on the 49ers. And uh, I'm very interested to see what they do with both him and McKinnon next year. We've been saying that for yeah, 15 months now. Uh, but when you look at his uh, his breakaway percentage, he finished eighth in the NFL uh, in breakaway percentage for uh, players that have played at least 20 percent of the maximum 304 snaps. So that's I uh, think the, the big thing the with him, uh, you know, that really would point to is how much better as a receiver as a receiver he was, exactly. um, you know, didn't get necessarily a, a high volume, you know, only 31 targets thrown his way. Um, but the drops were eliminated, had no drops this year. Um, had, you know, really uh, a pretty high coverage grade, all things considered. When you look at players who got at least 20% of the the league high targets, um, so just kind of weeding out those players that didn't really play at all, um, he actually had the highest receiving grade among running backs, uh, just a little above guys like McCaffrey and Kamara and Barkley. Now, again, those guys are doing it on a much higher volume, um, so no one's trying to say that he's necessarily in that league yet, but he went from being possibly the worst him and Carlos Hyde were the worst receiving running backs in the league in 2017. The fact that he is on the complete opposite end of that spectrum this year, I think uh, is, is the big thing for him and, and really his value going forward. Because again, as we talked about the run side of things, a lot of that has to do with the offensive line. If you can add value in the passing game as a running back, that's where you really kind of make your money. And he did it all year on a bum ankle. Uh, I mean, he was like people yeah. are kind of getting mad, like, oh, God, he's going out again with another injury. But like, I mean, he literally plugged through that injury. And yes, he he would go down and he would get taken out of games. But I think to say that he's injury prone is is taking it a bit too far. It's like the dude is actually, I would say, pretty resilient to be able to play through that all year. Definitely. Um, and, and so I think he is he, he is my offensive player of the year. Love that dude. Uh, defensive player of the year, DeForest Buckner. 
don't need to talk about too much there. No. I do think it is interesting that when I went back and listened to uh, the show at the beginning of the year, uh, the defensive players of the year that both David and I had were, David, who was yours? Uh, it was a Keller Witherspoon. <laughs> and mine was Reuben Foster. Um, so I will. The, the only thing I'm going to curse. It was the curse of, of the DPOI. I'm going to give myself a little bit of credit. And I, I started my pick of a Keller Witherspoon with the obvious answer is DeForest Buckner. That's what you get for going that. So, so uh, that's the only uh, thing. The that only saving to grace. redeem that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think Buckner was again, like I said, not a lot to say there. Um, he was the best player on this defense. Again, um, I will say, even though the sacks were quite a bit up. He probably wasn't quite no, as good on a good on a snap to snap uh you know basis as, as a, as a rusher year. last year but uh you know another very good season from him um and he's somebody you expect to be around for a long time rookie of the year none other than one mr mike mcglinchy 13 year vet uh <laughs> he, you know just yeah stepping right in there he's only a few years away from canton at this yeah. point you know he should be hanging out the cleats soon yeah uh yeah i think you know when we were talking about it before the season, uh, basically that it needed to be Mike McGlinchey, you know, was yeah. the thing that for I said this there. to work, it really needs and, to be that. Uh, and it, it really did. Yeah. I think he was the guy that had by far the biggest impact, you know, played the most, um, the defensive rookies did not play well at all. Nope. Uh, and then, you know, you look at some of the other guys offensively and while guys like Pettis, you know, had his moments for sure. Nobody was in there playing as much as he was playing and playing at a high level. Um, so yeah, I think that's, uh, even though it's, it's tough to look back and wonder what, you know, life with Derwin James would be like, uh, it's tough to argue with this pick, uh, I think after the, at least the first year right now. Yeah. I do think there'll always be a little bit of what ifs with Derwin James specifically. Um, but I do think that the team did nail this pick. I think there's, there's multiple ways to skin the cat and luckily this is one of them. And we're not talking about <laughs> drafting, you know, Vita Vea uh, and the sure. Some, yeah, some this is, it, it could have been much worse. Yeah. Uh, most fun play of the year. I think pick any of George Kittle's 50 plus yard receptions. Yeah. Uh, just throw them all in there. Like yeah. load that that reel up. Let's do it. Uh, dumbest celebration of the year. This is I, I don't know if anyone else saw this, but I think it was in the game against Seattle uh, or maybe it was in, in a game a little bit later than that. But the Niners, of course, only had two interceptions on the year, and, and I forget if this was on an interception or on a fumble recovery, but it is now customary for entire defenses to run to the end zone and take a picture with the end zone photographer. And the Niners got a turnover, and they tried to do this, but because they never get turnovers, they didn't know what the fuck to do. So only three sad little defenders went to the cameraman at the end zone and posed for a photo. <laughs> And two of them didn't even know what the hell was going on. I mean, it was really, really sad. That was perhaps the most ridiculous celebration I think I've I've seen. Didn't uh, didn't make a lot of plays on that defense no, this year. No, no, sure didn't. Uh, the best celebration though was Dante Pettis's fake sharpie. I loved it. He scored, I mean, Dante Pettis it really his. I'm I'm on board with the cat celebration too. I still think that's stupid. I love calling him El Gato because I think whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, you do you, my friend. He's an eccentric exactly. dude. Yeah, uh, Dante El Gato Pettis. I'm there for that nickname. But man, the whole like the lick your paw and <laughs> it's like so, it's, <laughs> it's so dumb, but it's so funny because of that. Yeah, um, I'm into it. Yeah, the fake Sharpie, though, paying an homage to former 49er greats. I love it. Uh, most disappointing player. Uh, I think it's, it's probably those, uh, D. Yeah, it's our player it, of the year. Uh, picks. The, yep. the deep, the deep boykers. Uh Man, that 2017 draft class. uh doesn't look so good after year no, two. Sure no. doesn't. Look great after year one. Not so much now. Best game, however. Uh, I, I think personally it was the week 15 versus the Seahawks. Uh, it was the first win against the Seahawks in five years. 
it was Nick Mullins. Just I mean, it was an overtime. It was an overtime game, so it was a good, close, tight game all the way around. Richie James with the punt return touchdown. It was a good back and forth game. I'm it was glad. also the game that cost us potentially Nick Bosa. So I can't. I can't get on board. There, there were no good games after uh, Jimmy Garoppolo went out. I'm. I'm done with good games, and the ones that when he was find, in there weren't even that great. I so. have to find some solace, some sunshine. I can't in, in the year. I, I know it. you're. You're. You're more akin to crawl up a butthole in darkness and die. I'm not I'm not okay for that. I'm I have to find some measure of happiness otherwise this becomes untenable. We we've yeah. been doing this now for shit now. This will be our 7th year. Uh, uh yeah. I mean it was well it was Harbaugh year 2, so 20 2012 was the first one. So yeah, yeah we're we, we're no, wrapping we, up year 6 basically. It's, yeah. Was I it mean, I guess year mostly two? year no, wrapping. Was it year, year 2 or year six. 1? I'm pretty sure it was year, year 1. We talk about this a lot. Oh, it's yeah, year we two. do. I yeah. always forget. It was after the first year. All right. So, yeah. I mean, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of shit uh and not a lot of happy. I'm I'm good at finding happy somewhere. It is. Man, <laughs> I'm just uh though man, after watching that national championship game and watching Trevor Lawrence play all year, I'm ready for two more years of shit just so we can get that guy <laughs> uh number 1 so, overall. You guys no, uh for long-time listeners of the podcast you, you, of course, remember Richard Reininger, former host of the show. He was actually on just a couple weeks ago. He came on oh, to nice. do Yeah, he was here for the holidays, and he did a, a quick lightning round uh, as a kind of in memoriam uh, of a couple things. But Trevor Lawrence looks a little bit like Richard. And it's kind of it's hilarious. Now, the, jo- the joke amongst our friends is now like, oh, look, it's Richard playing football on TV. Uh, so, and he doesn't have his Twitter account active anymore, so you can't talk to him about it, but just tweet yeah. me. I'll send him to him. Yeah. <laughs> tweet me at better rivals, uh, about him and Trevor Lawrence oh, and man, I'll send great. him his way. Um, but I think that about does it for this week's edition of the better rivals podcast. You, we've got a whole slew of off season content ready for you. We're going to talk a lot about the draft. We're going to talk a lot about scheme, uh, a lot about some things in scheme month. I've already got some, I think defensive things queued up for scheme month and we'll get to talk a little bit about match quarters and, and some split safety looks, which I'm super pumped about, but stay tuned. Uh, we'll be here again. I actually don't know if we'll be here next week. I don't know if you've been able to tell, but I have some microphone problems. You can hear some popping and it gets kind of quiet. Uh, I think I just need a new mic. This has been the, the, the old faithful mic for about six years now, as we've just confirmed. Yep. Uh, so I think it's time to trade in and get a new one. So I don't know what that looks like or, or what the hell we're going to do uh, for next week. But uh, we will be back as soon as we can uh, and we'll kick off the, the offseason content. Because at this point, we're going to get back into our overall roster eval. We're going to bring back the roster rubric. We're going to talk about our free agency preview and go back and do the exact same methodology we used for last year because not only was it successful, but it was actually pretty accurate. Um, And and so we're going to bring back the roster model. We're going to bring back free agency talk, and then we're going to roll right into the draft. There is no offseason for us, so definitely stay tuned on all of your major platforms, including Spotify. I always forget to mention that we're on Spotify now. Yeah. Uh, If you search Niners Nation on Spotify, you will find us there. Uh, so you can always follow me at Better Rivals on Twitter. David, where can they follow you? That will be at PFF underscore David. Thanks for tuning in this week. And as always, go Niners. Hey, everybody. It's Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Verge Cast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Verge Cast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else. So you listen to podcasts, check it out.